0: Welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Graham Blair. Graham is a printmaker and graphic designer based out of St. John's and holds a master's degree in cultural anthropology and museum studies from the University of British Columbia. After working in both non-profit and commercial galleries for a decade, Graham began pursuing printmaking full-time five years ago. He specializes in woodcut prints using techniques based on the earliest forms of printmaking. And in addition to selling his work at local craft fairs and venues, Graham sells his woodcut prints at the One of a Kind show in Toronto and most recently, the Original show in Ottawa. Hi, Graham. Hello, Dale, and welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. So, uh, where did you start to get interested in printmaking? How did that come about?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, I went to a fine arts high school in Toronto, and I grew up in Toronto. It's called Claude Watson School for the Arts. And I always describe it as being kind of like fame, because you had to addition to get in. Right. So you would have a major and a minor. So I auditioned for visual arts as my major, and then my minor was theater arts. But they also had music, um, you know, the whole the whole range of arts dance as well. So uh that's where I started out and it was an interesting program I mean to give an idea it had nude life drawing you know in grade 12 which you know you would never yeah. <laughs> have an eye. They didn't school. have that in my high school yeah anymore. yeah exactly <laughs> so you needed a a letter from your parents for approval but uh but uh so it was it, you know it was quite intensive as far as uh the hands on training in drawing things like printmaking painting uh, and the instructors are really good. So one of the instructors, for example, was a wildlife artist. Uh, so he did drawings of birds and paintings of birds for illustrations in books, that kind of thing. Hmm. So I started out, uh, I mean, I've always drawn, but that was really where I was first exposed to printmaking. But at that time, I graduated. So there used to be 13 grades uh, in Ontario at that time. So I graduated in 1992, and it was a period before the Ontario College of Art and Design added the design component. Uh, so it was um, post-abstract Expressionism. If you did anything illustrative or more design-oriented, there kind of wasn't room at the art schools at that time. So what I did was I went into uh, cultural anthropology and museum studies, which I'd always been interested in. And I uh, did that at the University of British Columbia. And... During the period that I was working on my degree, I kept doing drawing, but I also did printmaking. Uh, a large part of it was at the uh, Malaspina Printmaker Society, which is uh, very much like St. Michael's Print Shop in St. John's. So it's an artist-run uh, center that has stone lithography, etching, silk screen, all of the kind of uh, different print techniques there. Hmm. And then uh, and then you moved to Newfoundland uh, at <laughs> some point.
0: When did, when did you first Move here,
1: so I actually moved here ten years ago. Yeah, and I originally came out to do a PhD in ethnomusicology, but for various reasons, uh, being an artist and a designer was more viable, <laughs> which uh, you know was very unexpected. So, <laughs> 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 um, and uh, while I was here, I mean, how it sort of kicked in here was uh, I'd always wanted to do woodcut printmaking, so I had done stone lithography. Which is a technique where you're using these huge slabs of limestone, using things like gum arabic and nitric acid, and you need grinding sinks, and you need big presses to do that kind of printmaking. But I'd always wanted to do woodcuts because it's the oldest method of printmaking. So the earliest woodcuts actually date to the 8th century, Hmm. originally in China, and they were uh, Buddhist sutras. and I like the simplicity of it. So, compared to stone lithography, which I did, where you needed all of this equipment, you needed to be part of an artist run center of some part, of some kind, uh, with woodcuts, like something I could do at home. So, I kind of tested the waters uh, with a fundraising gala at Bishop Field Elementary, where my kids all go. Uh, and this was about eight years ago, I would say. Uh, and they have a silent auction as part of it. So, I did uh, a humpback whale woodcut very long uh, vertical print and there was a bidding war between people I didn't even know so I thought well that's kind of a good sign so we had been uh, my wife and I uh, had been involved with the farmer's market since it started basically nine years ago she's the waffle lady at the farmer's market and so I thought well you know why don't don't I try selling some at the market and see how that goes and uh, it went really well so it just sort of snowballed yeah. From that point,
0: yeah, and you just finished up uh, at the Craft Incubator in, in Saint John's. You were there for
1: five years. For five years, yeah. yeah. So the Kitty Video Village plantation came came around kind of like at a perfect time. So I had reached a point where all of my research and a big uh, majority of my writing for my th- thesis, my PhD, was finished. But uh, unfortunately, I couldn't find a job at the university. There weren't really any courses for me to teach. So I'd been at Eastern Edge Gallery uh, doing their communications. Kind of got tired of working in that space. It's a very cold, dark space. Um, And at that time it was also kind of in transition uh, as a gallery. It needed to have a bit more life put back into it, which it has in the last couple of years. But uh, so I had actually literally quit my job. (laughs) I was doing freelance design work. Had a couple of really good clients that I were giving me regular work and uh, this is uh, spring of 2012 and then i met somebody at a birthday party who said oh yeah there's this new uh, plantation craft center that's going to be uh constr- or that's constructed and we're going to be accepting applications so i thought well that's kind of perfect i'm going to apply for that and so i got in and i was there five years yeah mm-hmm.
0: so can you can you walk me through the process of woodblock printing from kind of start to finish in a, you know I know that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a big question in some yeah. ways, but in a, in, a, in a sort of condensed <clears throat> form, how, how, how do you start and how does it finish?
1: Yeah, so I do a, so it's an older approach to woodcuts. Uh, a lot of contemporary woodcut printmakers will use a plywood, um, which is very difficult to work with, I find, especially softer woods. Uh, so I actually use very, very hard woods. I use maple, hard maple as my main wood. Um, and the reason is I can get very fine detail with it. Uh, and it can hold the line and it prints really nicely because it's so hard there's no give so you can use less ink um, with with a harder wood so when I plan a woodcut what I do is I'll start by doing a pen and ink drawing either using pens or actually brush and ink as well I've done that Uh, so I'll do that on a a piece of paper work it out because I I do them in black and white at least at this point Uh, I have to make sure that uh I can carve what I draw because I can draw what I want but I have to make sure the lines are very clear so that I can actually carve them. And also try and do uh, create the illusion of grey tones by how I vary the thickness of the lines and how close they are together, just like hatching when you're doing a drawing. Uh, But I have to ultimately carve it. Uh, So when the drawing is finished, just to protect the drawing in case I mess this next step up, I'll make a uh, scan of it and then I print it out onto... uh, a Japanese style of paper uh, all of the papers I print on are Japanese papers uh, they're actually made from the softer inner bark of mulberry okay. and related species of plants so the uh, the kind that I will print it out onto is a very thin variety called gampi um, much more like a tissue and then what I'll do is actually take that print out and paste it face down on the block using uh, a rice a weak rice glue essentially Uh, So, the trickiest part is when it's partially dry, I'll then start to rub away the layers of the paper till there's just the very thin top layer left on the block. So it looks like it's actually on the block itself. Now this is specifically a a Japanese technique. Um, A lot of Western printmakers will use carbon paper and they'll end up redrawing their drawing onto the block or they'll draw it directly on the block. But why this works really well is uh, you can often draw something, and if you reverse it, it looks completely wrong. So with this technique, because you're pasting it face down, it reverses it, and then when you print it, it comes out the way that you originally had drawn it. So the next step is um, then the carving. Uh, And for carving, uh, I use uh, one knife for all of the line work. Uh, It's essentially, if you know what a skew chisel looks like, uh, so it's basically um, beveled on one side, and it's got a 45 degree angle, and it looks like a small chisel, but what you do is you, you grasp the handle upright uh, and use it uh, more like a knife, uh, rather than a chisel. And that's what I use all of the, the for all of the lines, then gouges and um, different uh, smaller chisels to just remove the waste area. So when the block is finished carving, I'll uh, just dampen it to get off the last bit of paper um, that was my guide for carving and uh, then I print each print by uh, rolling ink onto a glass plate and I use a uh, a linseed oil based ink so it's essentially linseed oil that's been polymerized so heated at a high temperature so that it chemically alters so it can dry um, and it has basically a soot added to it Uh, so I'll roll that out onto a glass plate get a nice even layer, and then I'll start rolling it onto the block, and then the actual pressure, I don't use a press, what I'll do is put the paper on top of the block, and then I rub the back of the paper, and I use one of two things, so I'll use either a wooden spoon, um, or a bamboo spoon actually, uh, which uh, is perfect because it's hard, but it's softer than the maple, so it'll actually wear down over time. Um, Or I also use a Japanese style what's called a baron. So essentially it's a disc that has a coil of bamboo rope on the underside And then it's got this handle that's fashioned out of sort of a bamboo. It's like a leaf, but it's Actually a sheath that comes off the bottom as it grows Uh, So I'll rub the back of the paper that gives the pressure and the abrasion uh, that uh, will Transfer the ink into the paper and then that's how each print is done. Hmm.
0: So, so how long does that take? Uh, I, I recognize that there are several steps in that, but the, mm-hmm. the from the conceptualization to the carving, how long how long does that process take you?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the actual drawing and conceptualization, I kind of don't have a good idea <laughs> about because I'll I'll draw things and I'll have you know I'll think about uh, designs for a long time. I'll have reference photos. Let's say if I'm doing a humpback whale, because obviously I'm not going to be swimming underneath the water, but um then I'll work out a drawing. The nice thing is with that process because the finished product is the print. It's not, it's not a reproduction of a drawing. I can have a drawing that maybe I cut a part away and I'll paste another piece of paper and redraw that part until Mm -hmm. I'm happy with it. Um, so that I'm not quite sure the time, but the carving itself is, is probably the most time consuming for one single aspect of it. So, uh, with a larger piece, Um, like something that's 11 by 14 Uh, we're looking at about 40 hours to carve something like that Uh, I did one print where it was an emerald dragonfly where I decided that I was going to make the wings completely accurate to including all of the striations in the wings and that one took 72 hours (laughs) to do Which was ridiculous. But generally, it's between 20 and 40 hours to carve the block. The printing itself isn't so bad. It's sort of, I would say that printing, it's not difficult, but it's easy to mess up. Um, It's easy to get ink on your hands, then all of a sudden there's ink everywhere. Uh, So the printing, relatively speaking, goes quickly. But I've also, at this point, literally printed thousands of of prints over the years.
0: Where do your materials come from?
1: Yeah, so so the wood... uh, that I use is is really just standard kiln-dried, really good quality furniture-grade maple from Canada. And you can get it at good wood suppliers. Places like Kent will have good selections of wood. The other tools, are, the tools I carve with are, are more specialized. Um, the main knives that I use are all hand-forged uh, Japanese knives. And the reason for that is uh, Japanese steel is, even I would say cheap, Japanese steel is still better than most mid-range or expensive European or Western steel. And the reason is they have uh, a technique where they will take a high carbon, much more brittle, an iron-rich steel, which is what holds the blade, holds the edge, and they'll fuse it to a softer, more uh, elastic variety of steel. Uh, So, basically, you have a very brittle blade, but it holds an edge extremely well. And the other steel that they put it onto prevents it from uh, breaking. So things like samurai swords are made exactly the same way. If you look down the length of it, you'll see that there's um, a little sandwich of really hard steel between softer steel, and a lot of Japanese knives are made that way, like kitchen knives. So that's what I use for um, for those. So those all come from, from Japan or suppliers in the United States that specialize in Japanese printmaking materials. The papers I use are also all from Japan. Uh, so these are uh, handmade papers. So they make them a sheet at a time. Generally, they're about 24 inches by 36 inches, but it depends on the particular village where they're made and they... Traditions they have as far as the the width and the size of the The um, screens that they use for making the paper
0: so y- You you obviously have an interest in Japanese uh, uh, Material and I know that you have gone off as uh, and and studied in Japan can, can you tell me about how that came about that that opportunity to go and study there?
1: Yeah, well, it's I I'd wanted to go to Japan for over 20 years and actually one of the uh, my uh, one of the major research projects that I did when I was a student at the University of British Columbia w- rega- uh, 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 talked about the Japanese way of tea, or chan no yu, which I practiced for two years. And uh, I always love the aesthetics of Japan, like the pottery, um, even the spaces with the tatami mats, that kind of thing. Uh, and just the fact that everything is done really with care and with uh, an attention to detail that you just don't see uh, very many other places. So the opportunity to go to Japan was actually just... I had not even planned to do this uh, artist residency. I was at the one-of-a-kind show in Toronto, which is one of the big uh, shows that I do every year. So the Christmas one is an 11-day show. I happened to be next to a glass artist who teaches at the Halliburton School of the Arts. And, he, and one day he just said, "Oh yeah, have you ever heard? There's this, there's this print residency that's um, at the base of Mount Fuji in Japan <laughs> on this like really beautiful lake." I was like, "No, I've n-, you know <laughs> never heard of that." Like, what? So he actually found it um, on his phone. He said, "Yeah, yeah, this is it. This is the, the residency, and it was uh, it's called Mi Lab, which is an odd. It's M I Lab. So it's Mokuhanga innovation." laboratory is what that stands for. Mokuhanga is the Japanese word for woodcut printmaking. Uh, So uh, I decided, well, I'm going to all apply. The application actually wasn't that hard. It was really work-based. So you uh, showed what kind of work you did, your process, um, sent images of of samples of it. But what was interesting about this residency uh, is that it was A residency and a workshop at the same time their preferred ages were people 30 to 60 which you never see usually it's youth or young people Uh, in this case they really wanted the people who were gonna take it to be people who would use it and maybe even spread the technique in North America or whatever country they were from Uh, so uh, so I applied and got in it's it was a 30-day residency and it was uh, right at the base of Mount Fuji. I could actually see Fuji from my bed, lying in my bed. I was
0: following your pictures online <laughs> the whole time you were gone. It's very jealous. yeah, and it was, it was actually very <laughs>
1: dramatic too because we arrived like in the small town. We'd come in from Tokyo by bus. It was pouring rain. We really had no sense of where Fuji was or where we were, and we were all assigned rooms by just pulling straws essentially. And so I woke up in the morning. Pulled the blinds back from this beautiful picture window, and Fuji was right there. And I just thought, "Oh, this is ridiculous." Um, so uh, there was actually five artists from around the world uh, that were part of this. So there was actually two women from Ireland. There was uh, uh, a man from Little Rock, Arkansas, who actually teaches at uh, a college there as a printmaking professor. There was uh, two young women. One was from Hong Kong, um, and one from Singapore. So the whole, the five of us were part of this for 30 days. And what they did was they would have uh, instructors in Japanese color woodblock techniques come and do some intensive workshops with us for a few days in the studio. And then they would go away. We would kind of try and figure out how to do things and help each other out what we could remember. Then somebody else would come back and and help us and teach us a few other techniques. Uh, The artists that were teaching us what was really great about the program you know you would think going to Japan they're going to be teaching these really old styles like yuki oe where you see you know the old uh, portraits of actors from the early 1800s that kind of thing with very fine lines and and colors these were actually contemporary artists uh, that uh, both uh, were involved in some way with the University of Tokyo and practicing artists so they did very innovative uh, approaches to woodcut prints which was great for me because one of the artists specialized in color so he didn't use any black outlines at all and he laughed at one and he said oh you use all black i use no black (laughs) you know so it was very good uh, as far as opening me up to these different techniques so what's unique though about japanese printmaking um, the woodcuts is they'll use multiple blocks for different colors uh, and they have to register it uh, so that everything lines up properly but they use also water-based pigments. So essentially uh, watercolor, like whole bean watercolor in tubes works perfectly. And that's actually what we use. Now, what's uh, unique about that is because they're transparent, you can overlay colors. So you could use a yellow and a blue uh, as two blocks and then strategically overlay parts of those blocks so that you produce a green. Mm. Um, The other thing is you can do fades with it. So, if you ever picture an old woodcut print like uh, Hokusai's Great Wave, it has a huge wave with Mount Fuji in the background, very famous one, but it has a sky which goes from a very dark, uh, much darker color to a lighter, almost just the paper color at the end. So, because Japanese printmakers, they don't roll the ink out separately, they actually brush it directly onto the block using a rice paste and the pigment and a bit of water. Um, and brushing it right on the block you, also enables you to concentrate the pigment in certain areas so you can get these, um, these gradations of color. So it enables you to do things that no other woodcut tradition enables you to, to do.
0: Mm. And so has that had an impact on your, on your current work? Um,
1: you... Because I was at the Kitty Vitty Village Plantation and because the tourist season is so busy, I basically came back from being in Japan for a total of six weeks on July 2nd
0: and then you're right back into and as right season, into right. the tourist season yeah
1: and that was last spring So I was basically just trying to keep up with things So I haven't had a chance to really experiment outside of Japan with those techniques But what is interesting though is there were some things I learned about how they cut blocks That was slightly different from how I did it but also uh, it was the first time I had a chance to use the Japanese style baron which I described earlier with the coiled rope on the bottom for rubbing the back of the print. Uh, it's an incredibly efficient way of applying both pressure and getting a slight abrasion. So as a result, my printmaking, I can actually print probably, you know, uh, let's say I could print a hundred prints, well no, I can't print that many, <laughs> 20 pr- let's say I could do 20 prints in five hours. I could do 35 prints in five hours right yeah uh, because of using these different tools so there's been that effect which is really great um, but now recently i've moved back uh, into a home studio so i actually have a nice basement area that is large enough to have a studio and i'm setting up the equipment or the the elements that i'll need for doing japanese uh, color woodblock right. print making yeah
0: can you, can you talk a little bit about the the types of designs that you favor. I know you mentioned the humpback whale and that kind of thing. Uh, what what do you like doing? Yeah. And then what sells well? And is there a difference between those two? Yeah,
1: it's, it's funny because uh, I had somebody at one show not that long ago say, come up and say, oh, so you're a wildlife artist. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, well, I guess maybe, but I've never really <laughs> thought about myself as a wildlife artist. Part of the reason is that 20 years ago, when I was doing printmaking in Vancouver, it was all people. It was all figurative, uh, completely different from what I do now. Now, at that period, I ended up with a lot of prints under my bed because it's harder to sell images, uh, portraits of people or nudes or whatever it might be. So uh, I'd always been drawn to wildlife. Uh, Even when I was a kid, anytime there was a project like a science project that we had to do in school somehow I would always turn it into a project about a bird of prey and you know those old Bristol board <laughs> presentations you yeah. do as a kid yeah. it would always have this very prominent you know drawing of some bird of prey and then maybe some written information <laughs> around sure, it yeah. but basically I would always do that um, so now I mean especially in Newfoundland I guess that's part of you know the being in the place so uh, I do favor things like humpback whales, capelin, um, other things like foxes. For example, there was the fox that was hanging out up at uh, Signal Hill. And I thought, well, it would be cool to do a fox because of that, because it's part of the landscape here um, and people interacting with it in you know this major tourist destination. Uh, so I'll do uh, animals that are not necessarily unique or special to Newfoundland, but ones that are here. Uh, occasionally though I'll branch out like I have one of a raccoon uh, part of it was inspired though by a CBC news story a couple of years ago where these this raccoon showed up in Conception Bay South and uh, I thought that was really funny the stowaway in Conception Bay and uh, so I did a rack it gave me an excuse to do a raccoon in that case <laughs> and of course in Toronto people either love them or hate them right, but yeah. it's <laughs> been one of my number one sellers yeah. uh, in Toronto Uh, Other things though, like I'll often go for kind of more fanciful uh, pieces that have some kind of historic reference. So one of the big pieces that is almost totally gone now, but uh, I did this Newfoundland deck of cards, which I called fishing, hunting, sealing, shearing. And I did that as actually as a centerpiece for a show at the craft council gallery that brought together three or four different artists. This was a few years ago now. Um, So with that one, uh, I was really inspired by old playing cards, which originally were actually made as woodcuts, uh, even into the early 1800s in North America. And what they would do is they do all the black lines as oh, the woodcut, and then they would actually dab color using stencils to uh, to mask off certain areas. Old playing cards are really cool, though, because they have the whole bodies of the jacks kings and queens they mm-hmm. don't do the reversal that you see on more modern cards and they only had the suits which i assume is because of literacy there were no letters or numbers so if it was the three it was just three diamonds across the middle uh but what i did was i did a a, a themed deck where uh it was a, as a print but you had the king the queen and the jack in each suit and each one was uh themed on a seasonal activity in newfoundland so the um, diamonds were all related to cod fishing. So I actually went to the rooms and looked at a, an old style of fork that they would use for hauling them out of the,
0: yeah, the boat. Yeah.
1: Um, and also, of course, the old style of uh, of cod jigger. And then in that case, the queen had a, a salt shovel for salting them. And I had her standing with it splayed open. Uh, then I had, you know, a, a hunting and gathering in the fall for the hearts. So it was a caribou hunter because even though people are crazy about moose, Caribou are indigenous to the island and that's actually very uh, special because a friend of mine who studies caribou actually said that it's the uh, most southerly population of caribou anywhere in the world or reindeer, their relatives. Uh, So it made it a caribou and then of course the queen in that case had a a berry picker. Uh, So in that I was drawing on kind of older elements of Newfoundland culture and the place but uh, making what really is a contemporary design with these older references.
0: Yeah. We're coming towards the end of our time here. And, and on the way here, you were, you were telling me about a, a recent acquisition that you were struggling to get into place. Yeah.
1: Um, an architect in town uh, gave me, for very little money, this huge old book press. Now, a lot of people use book presses for printing. Uh, book presses, though, are actually used for binding, book binding. This one, though, is like has a footprint that's almost 20 by 30 inches, and it probably weighs 500 pounds. It takes four strong people <laughs> to lift the thing. Um, I'm using that, though. The reason why I'm using it is for actually drying prints. When you're drawing prints for Japanese printmaking, you actually use this kind of board, which is uh, used in book binding. It's called davy board. It's very hard cardboard. And you stack the prints between layers of that to pull the last bit of moisture out. So this I'm actually going to use to compress the stack so that the the boards keep nice and square and flat.
0: Well, Graham, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, if people want more information about you and your work, how can they, how can they track you down?
1: Yeah, if you go, I have a website. It's grahamblairwoodcuts.com. Um, and on that, there is a link to my Facebook. I don't overly use Facebook, so I'll only... Uh, post new works, that kind of thing. So uh, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me.
0: I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ICH underscore NL. Thanks for listening.